Welcome to Spinning Out. I'm your host, Josh Robbins. This is a podcast where we talk to guests about their favorite albums. Today we're talking with Joey Ciara of the band Near Beer and previously of the band Henry Clay People. We talked about Desaparecidos' 2002 album Read Music Speak Spanish. We talk about the impact 9-11 had on this album and as an American culture as a whole and why this album still resonates with us 20 years later. We also talk about how much guitar music still has a big impact in our lives as well as knowing when to grow socially, emotionally, politically, and not just stay some version of yourself from years past. Near Beer released their self-titled album recently on Double Helix Records. Check out the album wherever you do streaming and pick up a copy on vinyl from the label right now. Interestingly enough, we didn't talk about it on the pod, but Joey's brother Andy directed the movie Palm Springs, which is out right now on Hulu. They also both recently released a show called The Resort, which is streaming right now on Peacock, so go check that out. Don't forget to check out our Patreon, that's patreon.com slash spinningoutpod. My co-host Sarah and I, we listen to records we liked a lot when we were younger and revisit them as much older and jaded individuals. You can subscribe for as little as $1 a month or more, and you'll get an exclusive episode every week. Honestly, you don't want to miss out, so go subscribe. Follow us on social media, Twitter and Instagram, at SpinningOutPod. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Leave a comment, and I hear reviews definitely help. Before we get into the chat, we are almost at 100 episodes. This is episode 99, so we'll talk more after the interview, but 100 episodes. That's wild. So, all right, let's chat with Joey. Hey, Joey, how's it going? It is going well. It is very hot, and I've been sweating a lot, but I have some AC going, so I'm much better now. I told you this uh, before we started, but I guess... uh, (laughs) So basically, I I still struggle to drink water, and I know I've already told you this, but I didn't drink any water today until like 1 p.m., and my body was like demanding it and trembling (laughs) because uh, my body couldn't handle walking my dog in like 95 degree weather which i guess makes sense more that i say that out loud or like of course but when that happened i was like i should be able to i wasn't running you know i wasn't you know it's just regular kind of walking uh i consider myself somewhat active you know but yeah so it's very hot is what you i'm got, saying yeah i gotta drink the water uh i have uncles and stuff that get kidney stones and it's uh they've scared the hell out of me and told me to just like hydrate at all costs and i'm terrible at it too but uh since moving to the east coast where it is more humid and sweaty uh i do like realize how much water i lose every time i do anything so yeah i feel like i do pretty good on drinking water but it it feels like when i go to do it i feel like i'm internally fighting with myself it's like i will drink it but i don't know why it it seems like it shouldn't be so much of a battle it's like my you know i'm my body knows that i need it so what what's going on you know like it's just i don't know i think we're spoiled with uh we grew up on all sorts of tasty sugary things uh so you know given the option between 
water and like anything, I, I still, my brain goes to like, or anything. Um, yeah. And so, yeah. yeah I, did like, you grow up in a household? Sorry. Um, did you grow up in a household that like, where you drank water on a regular basis? No, but uh, my mom is a, she's like a fitnessy person. And she like taught like, uh, she worked at a community college and taught like in their aerobics department and like their uh, athletic department. And she would just like chug a gallon of water every day. Like it was like nothing. It was like just what she did every day. Um, and then she had two mildly unathletic sons who uh, were just kind of like, oh, cool. Like Coke and Mountain Dew and anything that's like not good for you. We were like, that's what I would do. And I would, I would tell myself, oh, well, you know, this is, this is hydrating. Um, yeah this mountain deer that is probably doing all sorts of terrible things to me but it was delicious <laughs> yeah all right so today we are talking about desaparecidos their album read music speak spanish that came out february 12 2002 on saddle creek records and so what i'll ask is when was the first time you heard well this band and this record since for a long period of time this was their only record yeah pretty immediately um when it came right after it came out, I remember it very clearly because it was my freshman year of college. Um, and, you know, it, it just, it, all my friends, uh, not all my friends, like a handful of my friends were really into bright eyes and I like bright eyes too, but I had always like kind of grown up in punk bands and like just kind of had a punkier, yeah. angstier, like Ugh, to me. Uh, and then when this record came out, it just felt like, that's it. That's that's the sound that that uh, kind of nailed the angsty, punky thing. Um, but it was like not polished, and it was still like super melodic too, like you know, big major chords and whatever. Um, and so yeah, and then it also just kind of coincided at a perfect time with like what I was learning in college as a history major and like it was right after 9-11 and so going to like have your freshman year of college at this particular moment in time felt um kind of strange uh because it's like yeah. you're going in you know the biggest thing that has happened in the United States history in a very long time happened like two weeks before you had your freshman orientation um and this record feels like my freshman year um, I, I guess it came out like towards the back half or the back of my freshman year, but it also came out right when um, I got mono. And so I moved from like, from, from like a double dorm where I had a roommate that like hated all my music to like a single dorm where I had to like basically uh, quarantine in my own dorm by myself. And I just like, that record was the soundtrack to my single dorm uh, mono quarter. Yeah, mono seems so quaint now. Like, I feel like there was a world where that was, like, a big fear, you know? And now a post-pandemic world, I'm like, oh, mono, that seems nice. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, having mono, it was the sickest I'd been ever. It probably actually is still the sickest I'd ever been. Uh, and I don't wish it on anybody. And um, this is disgusting, but we might as well talk about disgusting tangents while we're, while we're yeah, here. But not? I remember uh waking up in the middle of the night and like my had been like breathing through my mouth because you know my, my nose was just so stuffed up uh <laughs> this is gross 
And then I remember sticking, like my tongue just felt like it was like leather. It was so dried out and like leathery. Oh, wow. I remember sticking it out and like, as I stuck it out, it was just like little fucking paper cuts, just like opened up on my tongue from like sticking out a totally dried tongue. This is disgusting. Uh, and then I was like, oh, that, that's not good. And then for some stupid reason, the next day I like drank orange juice and it just like burned my, like, it was like, it was like a, you know, uh, rubbing alcohol into an open wound kind of idiot thing for me to do. And uh, yeah, that's, that's mono. <laughs> yeah, I, that does, well, that does kind of remind me of just like, I feel like when I was younger, it would just be like, yeah, when you had a wound, you would almost like do things to hurt it more. And I don't know what that was. I mean, I, I know this isn't therapy and I should talk to my therapist about that, but you know, like it's, yeah, I don't know. Somehow this feels like it goes back into the album that we're talking about because it's sort of like this, like, I don't know, convincing yourself and waking up of the world that you live in, even when it's in your own body, you know? Um, and yeah, I, I don't know. There was something about, I think this era too, um, where I know personally, like, it's like when I first read like any Howard's in, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, like, and it was, so what's interesting now really diving into this record, like years later. And I guess for me to back up on it, I had listened to Bright Eyes, but it was never like I would put on Bright mm-hmm. Eyes, I think for the same exact reasons you're saying. So like, you know, like riding in cars with people or like, you know, girls I dated and whatnot, you know, but it was like, I liked it, but it wasn't, it didn't never, which sounds embarrassing now as a full grown adult, <laughs> but as a, as a younger person, I was, it was ne- never felt like I could admit to it, right? you know, that I liked it. And so, so I wish I did know that this band existed and I don't think I knew that they were a thing until many years later, you know, definitely before Payola came out, but like a point where this could have resonated the exact thing that I needed, that gap that I needed bridged, you know, but I didn't, I didn't have it, you know, but kind of like seeing some of the themes of what they're talking about really feels like it would have 100% resonated with 2002 me or even like a few years later when I was like going to college and things. Yeah. So I can imagine. Yeah. I mean, it, it's a, uh, I feel like I came to college with just like a lot of suburban angst. Uh, and I grew up in Orange, or I, I went to high school in Orange County in California, which is pretty conservative, but also like, was sort of, uh, you know, there's a lot of punk music coming out of there. Um, a lot of like the kind of screamo-y hardcore thing was also like coming out of Orange County. Yeah. Um, but what I, <laughs> I think the thing that I always liked um, or was interested in was like bands that weren't super proficient. Um, whereas like, I think yeah. a big part of like the Orange County hardcore thing was like, these guys were like metal shredder dudes who can like, you know, yeah chugga 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 like super fast and like the drummers were all like really good uh and i never was that person <laughs> for whatever reason my wrist is a little slower or i just kind of like was a little bit like i had the punk angst but like not the like practice or the discipline to practice and be like super like here's my jobs oh, um, yeah, for sure. and so there's something that i really loved about like music that felt like 
oh, these dudes recorded this in a weekend, or these dudes recorded this like fast and like they got the spirit of the song, um, but they didn't, you know, beat themselves up sweating out the perfect like triple guitar harmony kind of thing, which a lot of the bands that I was coming up with, like who were my friends and stuff, were doing that and like focusing on just shit that like I wasn't the, wasn't quite the spirit of the song. And so like hearing this, which just felt like a distillation of like the spirit of, you know, not just like the suburban angst, but also, yeah, it is like the Howard Zinn uh, like left, I know it, it's, it's a combination of the politics of like the uh, suburban angst and the like left-wing politics that just spoke to like my heart in the most perfect way. Um, and I don't know, just I think for a lot of good music, it just makes you feel less alone. Uh, mm-hmm. And yeah. this record, again, having it hit at that third quarter mono quarter for me, it was like, oh yeah, I feel less alone. And like, I remember getting into like debates with some of my friends who are like really big into Bright Eyes and like Bright Eyes had their fever and some years record. And I love, I love that. I mean, again, I don't, I, yeah. I really love those records, um, still do. But this one just was like, it just felt, uh, I don't know. It, it, when, you, when you discover a band, it feels like it's for you. <laughs> and, I, and I know that could be like the most annoying yeah. thing for people because they're like, you get really productive, but this is my band. But for whatever it was worth, like at UC Santa Barbara in 2002, I felt like Desa Barcitos was my band, you know? And, and, then, and they've ru- ruined everything since then about like how I, how I do music. Um, in a good way. Yeah, and uh, in you said like Orange County, so was this maybe my geography is bad with that um, area? So would that be like Fullerton or? Yeah, yeah, it was Fullerton. I, I grew up in uh, Yorba Linda, which is like um, it was adjacent to Anaheim. So my high school was in Anaheim, but Fullerton's right there. And like, yeah, at my high school, um, like. Uh, this band called Atreyu, um, who became, yeah, okay, they yeah. were very first band I was ever in was with a drummer, Brandon from Atreyu, when we were in like eighth grade and we played Blitzkrieg Bop at my uh, junior high talent show. And then all my friends got into like this the really hardcore stuff. Um, Death by Stereo was another band that was like from our high school. And then like Cold War Kids, which is kind of, they, they were another band that was from my high school um, or partially from my high school. So it was that whole area i know cold war kids doesn't sound anything like you know death by stereo or no, yeah um but it's interesting yeah because i mean i so growing up in wilmington north carolina on the coast of north carolina um i i was drawn to like punk music so you know fat records and all that stuff was kind of my entry point totally but then it kind of just seemed like the scene just all went into like hardcore and metalcore and it was like you just kind of go to where your friends are going you know and so it's like i liked a lot of that stuff so you know but it but it, at a point like even when i was playing in those bands you know i had this feeling like so i remember one time someone was like hey uh y'all want to play a house show but we were like a metalcore band and and i remember my friends in the band were like but we wouldn't have a stage like you know it's like they they kind of came at it from more of that angle and couldn't imagine like why would you play without monitors and stuff and it's like to no discredit to them it was you know i was like but that's like where i wanted to be when i started you know so it's like 
kind of living both things. It's like, I, I know the bands you're referencing, like, you know, like uh, Orange County bands, like Bleeding Through or Throwdown. Totally. And, and, you know, I had, I had a, a big Atreyu phase, you know, but it's like, but I always felt like I was like, just thinking back to, it's like, if I can get back to like punk at some point, if I find like-minded people. So it's interesting kind of seeing kind of, I guess it's like, you could have done that. I guess that you probably did go to those shows, you know? Um, but it's like, you still had, I guess, a, you had a big enough view of who you viewed <laughs> yourself that you were able to hold on to this idea of yourself with me. I just was like, oh, I guess I'm this kind of person. Now. I, I think it was, yeah. it was interesting. Cause like, yeah, there was definitely <laughs> like a, a, a split at some point because I was in bands with these guys and I was in, you know, there was a time in my life. I was in like a straight edge hardcore band called strict with, with the guys from Atreyu or two of the guys from Atreyu, uh, before they were Atreyu. And um, it just, you know, I never felt like this is the music that I love. Uh, I wasn't into like the, you know, more affected screaming stuff. Um, it just wasn't, it wasn't for me. And then, you know, it was also a time when like all these like emo bands started happening, like Get Up Kids and like, you know, Save Today and whatever, Jimmy World. Um, and so there was like a split between like, oh no, we're gonna go, half of us are gonna go look more like metal side half of you guys are going to go do like kind of a mall emo thing, but it was before it became all screamo-y. Um, and I kind of felt like I didn't fit into either side. Um, and I kind of felt like, well, where, where, where's the band that is for me? Like I still, uh, cool. I like to get up kids a lot, but I never like got into like this super, um, I don't know. So like the the more screamo-y thing, thing, things that came out after the Get Up Kids, what wasn't yeah. quite wasn't quite my scene either. And so that's why like I do think that this Desperados record, like it felt familiar. Like these are kids that grew up listening to uh, those hardcore bands, but they also sound like they grew up listening to you know Weezer and like uh, stuff that was like more melodic and I, I guess it's sloppy. Um, like mm -hmm. there's something about Weezer that I think that I, those first two Weezer records or whatever are, they're great and like, but they're kind of slop too. I mean, Pinkerton's like a sloppy record. And I feel like the beauty of this record, of uh, the Desperados record is that it's also, it's beautifully sloppy. And that to me just felt like accessible and touchable, tangible in a way that like, uh, I feel like the scene that I came up and did not emphasize. Um, and yeah, I still think that that's an important thing for me. Like in all the music that I've like gone back in, whether it's like Pavement or The Replacements or like The Clash, like those bands are sloppy as shit. And I love how sloppy they are. And I feel like the magic of what the bands, what those bands do is um, part of it is the fact that, you know, they're not, to a click track and quantize <laughs> yeah that well that it's funny because i feel like i i i feel like i'm starting to like catch myself how much i talk about click tracks and things being quantized on the pod so much like it feels like every episode um so i'm glad that you said it instead of <laughs> me this episode um because i i feel like there is so much like humanity well in this record that we're talking about and kind of the some of the music you you're talking about that as much as I liked metal 
there's so many bands that don't feel human and i think a lot of times they don't want to right you know and that is the difference with it you know but like that is what always kind of like bothered me about it some like it just always made me feel like i was like there as a spectator as even as much as i liked it so when i heard things like who's do i heard things like replacements it just felt like it was like speaking my language like i sometimes when like my band writes music and i guess someone could be like ah it's sloppy that's i love that it's sloppy i don't even really think about it's not like i'm writing music to be sloppy it's just the byproduct of like who i am as a person and that's like what it speaks to me as you know so i would assume it's kind of the same thing with you it's not like a let's write a sloppy song it's just you being your authentic self yeah. with it you know yeah no I, so that, that to me is uh uh as i've examined more of what my tastes are i do think it is fully like engaging in authenticity uh you know means the most to me when it comes to like is is this band attempting to hit this target and like is it sincere them trying to hit this target or is it if i feel like it's calculated too much or i feel like it's like showing off too much uh or some kind of a affected posture then i i, I call bullshit on it but like that's the cool thing about a lot of metal bands a lot of metal bands it's not like their posture is like they want the music to feel uh not inauthentic they want the music to be about the chugs and the like the guitar riffs and the like proficiency yeah. and you're you go to a metal show and you're, you're you're paying for to watch that proficiency and it's sort of like it's just the contract that you make with you as an audience member you and you know as a band like I don't go to see, um, I'm going to see the, you know, the pavement reunion or whatever. I'm not expecting like to go see the pavement reunion and like have them just be like <laughs> perfectly all yeah. together. Like that's not what it's about. I don't go see guided by voices to like see uncle Bob do like, perform a very like sober set. You know, I, I, the part of the contract that you make with these bands, cause you want to go see them be their authentic selves and like, uh, if that's being super proficient, cool. If that's being kind of slackery, cool. If that's being like, you know, fist in the air, chanting about politics, cool. As long as it feels like that yeah. is like, that is what the band is about. And uh, yeah, yeah. And I guess too, on some other end, like you were saying about like the authentic self, um, I do think that there is something about bandness as opposed to like singer or solo act um and i talked about this on another podcast recently but it was like i'll give me a band any day over any like solo person uh and it's not mm -hmm. that i don't love you know elliot smith it's not that i don't love like beatles solo records I, I love them all but i also like uh i think there's something about filtering a sound through four or five people in a band who all bring uh their skills, but also their lack of skills, I guess. Uh, yeah. And I think that that's utterly charming when a band, you know, uh, you feel the shortcomings of the band uh, and you know that the bass is like gonna flub here, but the song is better because the bass flubs here because uh, it's human. And if you had a studio guy play that, then you'd be screwed. It was uh, the last podcast, the guy, uh, the guy said he was like, he talked to some studio musician dude who uh, had worked with uh, the Ramones and he was like, 
or it was a producer who had worked with the Ramones, but I talked about these like studio musicians who for the life of them, like couldn't play like Blitzkrieg Bop or do like a Ramones song because they just were like too good and proficient. And I think there's just something charming about like a Ramones song can only ever sound like a Ramones song because it is filtered through these four dudes that are like playing it like a Ramones song. Um, and to, yeah. you know, Connor Oberst, obviously like Bright Eyes, I know is like, kind of, you know, it pretty much it's a solo-y thing. I know he's got his like regular collaborators um, and that's who he filters it through. But one of the things I like about the Saborositos is that for all intents and purposes, it feels like a band band. Like I know he he's he was this shining star who like was a huge part of the band, but it still feels like an egalitarian democratic punk band um that he just happened to be in and write really good lyrics and music for uh, yeah yeah i do you feel like uh bright eyes fans i mean i i i know that you found them like when this record came out but like do you do you ever feel like bright eyes fans talk about desaparecidos like do they go hey you should check this out you know yeah you know i don't know i just uh like my friends that at the time were big Bright Eyes fans, this, uh, I think for a lot of them, this was like a record that was like his side project, the side project band in like kind of an afterthought. Um, and because, you know, I think I had discovered Fevers and Mirrors a, a whopping like three months before this, um, this record did not, quite feel like a side project thing I mean you know this felt like I, I was I was put it this way I was very bummed when I didn't get like a Desaparecidos record within like another year and a half I was like waiting for it to happen and maybe naively surprised when it didn't happen until you know whatever 12 years later um because I don't know I I looked at this not as a side project I looked at this as like a, a record that the yeah. guy had, had something said something and hopefully would be saying yeah you just took it all on its own terms like that's that's interesting because it's it's even going into this it's like i almost feel like i had to kind of forget you can't forget but it's like this is a band you know this isn't like trying to not just put connor oberst like completely in the picture you know um i, I don't know that that's such a strange thing that i feel like it's it's hard to separate yeah with it so i love that you were able to really have that just like i i can't think of any other example that would be that way i don't know like if you were just like well like generation x was that the pre uh billy um, idol. i don't know yeah billy idol band if you were just like yeah. you know started there which people would have you know but, uh, i think that's a big yeah, thing like any time you you have a um Anytime you come in on a band a little bit late or a, a record, I mean, we talk about this with Pavement a lot, like Terror Twilight was like the Pavement record that I heard first. And, you know, that's not everybody, that, that's like a lot of people's least favorite Pavement record, but it was the first one I heard and I did not have, you know, I'm sure if I heard Slanted and Enchanted first, that would be my favorite, but it wasn't. Terror Twilight was my first Pavement record. I clung to it, loved it. Uh, and I do feel the fact that I had not ever seen Bright Eyes before I had discovered Desaparecidos uh, was helpful for me, you know, kind of like attaching to this record <laughs> quickly. It's a similar, similar yeah. thing uh, 
it's like the telly strats thing like whatever whatever was your like first guitar some people or the first guitar you really love that's like the guitar that you stick with um yeah it's funny when people do that with guitars because i mean it's like as a bass player it's like i mean i'm left-handed so it's like i just got what was in front of me and i got a jazz bass and then people would be like how do those handle pedals and i'm like i don't really understand what you're asking me you know i was like this is just the one that i picked and like when i went to get a new bass because i was like oh i've been playing for a long time now i sort of know what i'm doing i got another jazz bass like it's like i could have i feel like most people will pick a p bass and that kind of thing but it's like just kind of the one you pick at some point you know but then people are like oh you're a telly guy or a strat guy and you know and people even with i don't know yeah i'm i'm showing myself as not really knowing a lot about what any of the uh knobs do or <laughs> any of the things that i'm supposed to i feel like sometimes you really honestly do just kind of pick it and you stick yeah, with it. yeah yeah you know? yeah and i guess i, I i'm being slightly disingenuous here because the first the guitar i had was a squire strat and now i pretty much only ever play telly so you know who knows yeah yeah i yeah i even well i've talked about this a lot on the pod for some reason i feel like growing up i was always someone that kind of like i would pick a band or pick a thing and then that was my personality mm -hmm. like it so it's like if i picked even like as i've gotten older it's like i made myself into a jazz bass guy and it's like, I didn't really have any, like, didn't do a lot of research on why I should be. It's just like, it's like picking a team, you know? It's like, you probably pick it based on geography, but sometimes as a kid, it's like, I like their hat. And then 20 years later, you're still just like a Cubs fan, yeah. you know, or something. And you're like, like, it's like, I, you know, I have like Mets gear. And basically I got into it because my wife is a Mets fan. And then people will be like, oh, how about the team this year? And I'm like, I don't really know, man. I just got this hat, you know. But it's like I picked that as my personality, and you kind of just keep running with it, you yeah, know? No. <laughs> without like doing any research, you know. I, I my dad's so. a, a Cubs guy, and I'm from Chicago, and like I did screw up like with a Cubs hat on <laughs> all the time, and I can't tell you uh, much about the Cubs past like Mark Grace, Andre Dawson, Sean Dunstan, like the 19 like late 80s cubs is the last cubs that i really know but i still wear the hat yeah <laughs> yeah like if you were to buy a new hat you would probably be a cubs hat yeah yeah i do like the dodgers i, I guess i have an affinity <laughs> for the dodgers so uh, but yes. yeah but yeah even thinking about this record did you ever get to see them live yeah so i didn't see them on the early I think they didn't tour. They did like one tour or something. Oh, yeah, I don't know how many and then shows they did off of it originally. They got back together and I saw them at the Troubadour in LA and it was great. I mean, and at, by that time I had seen Bright Eyes, you know, I don't know how many times. Um, and uh, yeah, obviously, I, I, again, I really love Bright Eyes. They put up, like Bright Eyes put out this record. It came out after I had found this Read Music Speak Spanish record called, uh, it was their lifted record and it was this massive 13 song orchestra like opus and that record's you know i for i think a lot of bright eyes fans that's like a masterpiece record and it was it was really great and it's a really great one-two punch with like this desaparecidos record and that bright eyes record and just like really see how like talented the dude is um but 
it was still really cool going to like see a punk band at the Troubadour and see the Desperados just be like five dudes, you know, kind of like don't bore us, get to the chorus, rock and roll. Um, and, and it was good. I mean, like they, they it felt like, it, it felt like how I expected them to be, but it also felt like, uh, you know, I think when you get the scrutiny of being kind of like the indie darling that he was or he is, uh, I think people look at him like, oh, well, are, it, are you going to treat this like a side project when you sing the songs or you sing them like it's your, you know, less passionate side project? And no, dude, the guy brought it, like the guy was into the songs. You can tell that he feels the songs. The whole band seemed really stoked to be playing. It felt sincere and great and it made me want to see them a lot more. And then I think that he had some um, uh, health issues that year and they had to cancel some of the tours. I don't think they've toured really since. But that record, that second Desaparecidos record, I also really loved and um, was very excited when it came out. And all, you know, every new song that came around, like me and my buddies from like 20 years ago or 15 years before, we're like texting each other. And dude, did you hear this? It sounds great. Um, yeah. yeah. And it's, you know. Yeah, I, I feel like when I really dug into Desaparecidos, I feel like it was because of when Paola came out. Like, uh, that was kind of like, oh, I mean, I knew the story by then and everything, but it was like, it felt like it gave it context and everything. I, what I'm saying is I really like Paola. Um, so it was interesting to kind of revisit this and also kind of think about it in the terms of 2002, because one of the things I read about it is they recorded it, it online, it says this, and I don't know if you know the true story with it or not, but it says they recorded it the week of 9-11. Yeah, I heard something like, like the week of, the week after. It was like yeah. something, it's something like right around. Really close. Yeah. 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 Um, and yeah, they did it all in kind of like a marathon week, week long session or something. Um, I don't know any more details on the story, but uh, I do think that that context fits really well, uh, or it fits not really well. It fits like sort of the narrative of this thing. And I know people have written about like maybe that's more part of the reason why it didn't it wasn't this like massive hit because it was critical of America at a time when like America all of a sudden was very raw, raw America again. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. But I think that to that point, like going into a college where I was becoming a history major. And I remember that quarter in particular, the one, the mono quarter, I had like a criminal justice class to, uh, and it was, you know, growing up in super conservative Orange County and then having like a criminal justice class that was basically saying like everything the opposite of what, you know, conservative Orange County says. It was taught by like this like judge who was like, we should legalize pretty much everything. And then we need to like stop how, or we need to totally have a realignment of how cops are run and organized. Um, and, you know, it was like a pretty radical punk rock to have to coinciding with this but then I would go back home to Orange County for like holidays and stuff and see some of the people that like didn't ever leave Orange County and get in like political arguments with you know neighbors and parents friends and like shit like that uh or I there's something about like the distillation of like this it's sort of like the smart kid that goes to like a <laughs> a smart well-educated kid uh angst that i think that 
Connor Overs just sort of be, has become became the poster boy for that uh, also felt like it really like resonated with so many people's identities. Um, and you know, I guess yeah, it's a it's a kind of a uh, a romantic like type like you're you're the smart unappreciated you know dude who is like spitting truth and the world just doesn't quite isn't quite ready for it doesn't quite get it and like i'll know a lot of people that like felt that and uh felt like he was speaking for them by being that guy and yeah that's that's interesting that that was your experience was because i feel like when i took a criminal justice class it was taught by a um it was like a retired police officer so it was it was just probably it sounds like the complete opposite of that like i already had enough of my identity there and i'm thinking about like college courses a few years later because you know it's like that's what we hang a lot of our identity on and i'm kind of thinking it's like do you feel like you were already that person so whenever he was speaking kind of that that teacher was speaking that language it was kind of like oh already i know these things and i can kind of learn more from it or did that sh- kind of shape the way you thought about things? Maybe both. Um, both. Uh, to be quite honest, like uh, I grew up and my my dad was a cop, um, and uh, and you know he's he's he had two punk kids that like <laughs> made him more liberal. But uh, as a kid growing up in suburban Orange County with a cop dad, and like you know we rebelled to like punk rock, uh, and I think that it's there's some level of like rebelling to punk rock on purpose when your dad's a cop. Like, I don't think it's like an accident. Um, but I did think what was interesting, uh, we grew up in a pretty, uh, also very Christian. I mean, Yorbaland is a very, it's like more churches per capita than like, you know, in, in Southern California than like any other place. It's, it's, it's very, very churchy. Um, and so I did feel like going to college, um, did feel pretty radical like uh and the classes that I was getting like it was refreshing to hear adults with authority say things that I was like agreeing with because I felt like the dominant culture of the suburbs where I grew up did not agree with me and so I always felt like I had a bit of like a I think part of that angst that I had was like um against where I grew up then you go to college and you, you realize that like, oh no, there's like professors and stuff that are like agreeing with you or actually giving you a lot more uh, intellectual ammunition for like where your angst comes from. And you're, you're, you're right to have that angst. It's okay to have that angst. And I think that, you know, that was a big part of it. And then this record kind of hitting at that time and really distilling the spirit of it, like lyrically, musically, um, you know, that was also a huge part of like why it kind of, uh, it was like this magic moment where I think all the things kind of combined into like, into one. Yeah. In that, uh, well, I started at community college, uh, and then moved on to a university, but, an, the other teacher in that, uh, in that semester was an English teacher and we would write papers off of documentaries, which is kind of a normal thing, but and, and I didn't think about it at the time because it was just information given to me. But we would watch, like, the Enron documentary. But we would also watch, like, Loose Change. <laughs> or we would also... Then he would show us these, like, kind of proto-YouTube, because I don't know if YouTube was a thing then. Um, like, basically what became... Essentially, like, he was like a QAnon libertarian, but that wasn't a thing yet. 
yeah, know, yeah. he would watch he would show us like bohemian grove and then we'd have to like so i remember like then telling people like have you heard about this thing you know but and then eventually having to almost like dig myself out of it and kind of realize like oh but that's not what i feel like it it was like that was kind of the modern equivalent of conspiratorial thinking that i think has yeah, yeah. Kind of changed so much but it was still like this weird it was almost you could almost be left and you can almost be right believing in a lot of conspiracy at the time like alex jones wasn't the way he is now but he kind of was you know <laughs> so it's like thinking about that like what you're saying your college experience like based on like what mine was at that point but like still kind of then still finding like Howard's in and being like oh no this is actually what I think and feeling like I had to like kind of claw myself out which I know probably growing up in like the Fullerton Yorba Linda area would have been similarly you know with it because I you know I've heard I've heard similar stories of kind of like how big of like a church culture it was oh, yeah, yeah. and kind of coming from like a church culture myself it's like it really does feel like clawing yourself out of like it's like you you know a kernel of who you are yeah. and you're trying to like find like men like-minded people so with that when you were when you were in college do you did you feel like you were able to find those people outside of the professor like other fans of the band yeah and things it, it, it was great in college i found like um a lot of like the suburban kids who were angsty and like more left-wing who were like hey we've you were that guy at your school you were that guy at your school you were that guy at your school you're yeah. the girl like let's 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 hang out and like go to shows together and uh and yeah it, it was it was a lot of that and like starting bands and it just felt like uh a, a nice sense of freedom that also i think because the kind of the tyranny of the Orange County <laughs> hardcore scene, like also felt like a a structured way of thinking that I wanted to break free from. I think that there was something um, that was really refreshing about finding this like weird in-between space between like kids that grew up on like power pop or like punk hardcore, uh, yeah. you know, it was, a, it was a bit more eclectic, um, but it was all kind of, circled around like suburban kids that had a bit of a chip on their shoulder and which is which is interesting like back to the like this being recorded the week of or a week after 9-11 like I do think that like Connor Oberst's career uh or like you know him as a uh spokesperson like largely mm -hmm. happens too uh because for I think you can kind of see a split between before Iraq war and like uh stuff and then like after uh I mean he became mm -hmm. obviously like a very more very much more uh outspoken critic of, of those things but this is before 9-11 happened that this record you know is recorded yeah and, they wrote yeah they wrote these yeah. songs that speak to a post 9-11 world yeah but what's cool about it uh, before now it feels it feels about like suburbia and i mean even the album artwork and even the album like a lot of the like lyrical content is about like restlessness with the idea of like the identity that you were supposed to put on as like somebody who is trying to like rise the ranks in suburbia um and i think that but he still finds a way to be like political about that and that to me was like the sweet spot that was kind of the magic like how do you make like 
going and getting a nine to five job and getting married and having 2.5 kids, how do you make that like feel, um, have some angst towards that in like a political way. And I think that this record Mm -hmm. does that in a way that uh, I still think not a ton of records have done. Like I, 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 he has a way of doing like the human personal stuff with a political slant that I think is like pretty special and unique to him. I mean, obviously there's lots of people that, that can do it, but I think that his style of doing it and actually doing it um, so poignantly so young is uh, something that also felt like uh, accessible, but also aspirational. Um, one of the things that I think the reason that I like certain bands that aren't always <laughs> super proficient is because I think that for me, uh, music is also super aspirational. And so if I see a band that is just like super pro and those dudes shred, like I just yeah. go, cool, well, I'll never be that. And so like, I'll watch them, I'll appreciate them, but there will always be some kind of like distance between me seeing them and me and my experience watching them. Whereas like, what I love about so many of my favorite bands is that there's like, they're just, they're operating and they're just like, they're better than any band that I'm in, but they're like, it still feels within grasp. Like if I, yeah, and if I can write some better lyrics and if I like try a little harder and like, maybe we practice, you know, a couple more hours a week, like we're, we're almost there. And I think that there's something really cool about finding, you know, this band and feeling like, dude, I feel like we can do this. Uh, obviously, that's where it's going to be better, but like it gives us something to strive towards that felt like accessible. Um, and it also, mm-hmm. I mean, for this band in particular, the band that I was in as a kid in high school and like my first year of college broke up and we had a singer who had just like golden pipes and like the dude can hit all the notes and like, you know, ha- had a great voice for the kind of music that we were like doing um and then he quit and just kind of like up and left and like he moved to florida and left our band kind of just uh okay like what's next and so i ended up singing and at the time i had never sung in any band before and i was just doing it because like nobody else was stepping up to sing and yeah i think part of my like (laughs) uh like ability to just do it I, i do credit like you know, Brian Esparcito, his voice is ragged and like not, he's not a virtuoso singer, but it's like so human and it made me more comfortable being like, hey, if you just like put this, your emotions and your voice might shake and it might crack a little and it, but as long as it's like real, like there's a, there's a place for it. And so I think, uh, I mean, this is maybe cheesy here, but like, I maybe would never have like had the confidence to like start a new band and sing in another band if it wasn't for yeah. like the Desaparecidos or Connor Roberts or whatever. And I know that's it's a little cheesy, but I I am grateful for it. Uh, and then it was also interesting too because at that time, um, you know, what the old band that I was in went through such a flux with the other singer quitting, and I kind of we were kind of in between. I kind of found myself in between bands and trying to start something up new. And that's when I reached out to my brother who was still in high school. And I asked him like, mm-hmm. Hey, like, will you play guitar? Like we have this like show, but like, 
can you feel it on guitar? And then like my brother who, you know, felt like he got called up to the majors to like come play like a college party uh, and fill in a guitar. <laughs> and like, you know, that all of a sudden my little brother who is like, just my little brother became one of my best friends um, because he we called him up to play guitar in this like new scrappier punk band that I was trying to sing and not, you know, it, like hit, hitting the notes and being proficient was not what this band was about. It was like Desaparecidos and like hot water music and like hot snakes. And like, it was a little bit more like sloppy and fun. Um, and then uh, to kind of bring it a little bit full circle, <laughs> um, I remember going back home, like I think it might've been my spring break or something. Um, or it actually might've been my next year of college might've been my sophomore year. And my brother was doing a report in his like high school English class. And he did the um, uh, the happiest place on earth, which is like one of the bride or one of the Desaparecido songs on the record. That is very like, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> it's a very critical of America song. And I think the like assignment that he was supposed to be doing for his English class was like bringing something that is like patriotic because it's fucking Orange County. And I wanted you to like, reflect on your country especially rah rah post 9 11 shit and my brother brings in that song and i just like i felt so proud <laughs> like my brother brought in like a a good punk desaparecido song for like an english class assignment as like a middle finger to his uh english teacher and that made me very happy yeah that's great um yeah i don't know just thinking about also just still thinking about that time frame like because there was something else I read where they were saying, like, after they recorded it, they were, like, thinking about not even putting it out because of, like, the climate that we were in. And it's, like, it feels easy because of everything we know now that I feel like people are more comfortable kind of speaking out. But I, I think, like, it was from my recollection and from kind of what other podcasts or whatnot have told you, like, it was a time that you almost didn't know if you were allowed to speak out or it was just a lot more uncomfortable than someone, if you're younger, could imagine that it was to kind of be that outspoken. Because essentially, if you were like against, it's like if you were against Iraq war, then you were like pro 9-11. <laughs> you were pro what happened, you know? And then, so it's like no one could really, you know, and I know as a kid, it's like I only knew that you didn't really make jokes about it when I mean, we still did but you know it's like you did you weren't really supposed to like someone would get really angry so a lot of the stories with it it makes sense where they're like we didn't know if we should put it out or like there was like a poster that i saw uh it was a bad brains poster and for some reason around it was from 2001 they canceled the show and i was like well there's a lot of reasons why bad brains would have canceled a show at that time but i i was like let me try and figure out why they canceled this specific show mm -hmm. and then it said uh you know due to due to like deaths in the family and other things like and because of the the problem they said something like it was like something like the problem you know or something and i was like what would that and then i, I, I was like holy shit 9 11 because it was like it was like weeks after 9 11 yeah. and you know they had such a like home base in new york that i was like wow that's like so crazy to think of like canceling shows yeah. because of 9 11 you know of course you know, but it's like, I didn't, I didn't grow up in New York, yeah. you know? So, um, but just like that, that hold that it had. And like, as a, I remember it all, 
but I wasn't like playing in bands at that point yet. So I, you know, it's like, I wasn't contextualizing things then, but I remember in like English classes, like we wrote like patriotic poems, yeah, yeah. you know, that we, we turned in and it's like, I wrote one that my stepmom like sent to somebody and they were like, we're, we're going to publish yeah. it, you know, like it was the worst poem ever, but you know, it was like, that was kind of, that was the feeling at that time. It's the same. It was that same kind of class. It was like, Hey, like let's, let's reflect on how much we love this country and how much it means to us. Uh, and I mean, I think I, I mentioned before, my dad was a cop and again, had two kind of punk lefty kids. And, um, you know, I have problems with a lot of, I have problems with a lot of law enforcement stuff. And I, uh, of course, uh, yeah. but I will give my dad some credit. Like, um, he had having two kids that were kind of like, you know, I know there wasn't a draft, but if there was a draft, we were at like draftable age. And he, at some point, like kind of spoke out amongst his like cop colleagues about being skeptical about the war and feeling like, hey, you know, I don't want my fucking kids to go fight this. I wouldn't want my kids to go fight in this war that I think might not be as legit as other people think it is. And like, because he said some of that stuff, he was ostracized by the members of, you know, the good old boys and, you know, the, the police department. And, and I think at that point, for what, it's, for what it's worth, like he saw that like speaking up and kind of like being a voice of dissent, like led him to get piled on by people and like I think he mm. all of a sudden like saw and understood punk rock a little bit more <laughs> and uh and he I think he now like gets uh, I think he he now likes being the, the voice of dissent I mean uh he to, uh, this is kind of rare for cops but he has not voted for uh a Republican president since pre or since George Bush uh since before 9-11 and so yeah. every president since my dad's voted democrat which i think is pretty rare for for cops um that's pretty rare for cops and like military people because i come from like a pretty conservative uh family that you know most people went into the military yeah. so it was like you know and like my perspective on that i remember like my dad he like i was raised really religious and really conservative but driving around town like going grocery shopping with him or whatever it was like the time i got to spend with my dad um he would like you know we would just ask him questions and he would like try and give an answer that wasn't just built within the paradigm of like what he believed and so all these years later i remember he told me kind of half jokingly because that's like the only way he does anything um it's like he was like if i would have known that you all would have turned out so like left-leaning you know i wouldn't have just you know, like, it's like, I would have wanted to, like, I'm happy that I allowed you to think for yourself, but I almost wish that you believe things the same way that I do. You know, and that's like a strange thing, but it's like, I feel like he knew more in the importance of like you being your own person and not like a version of him. And maybe that's what your dad saw. It's like, maybe my kids won't turn out like me. I don't think they think that going in, but they're like, I don't want these to be little me. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, uh, I'd give my parents some credit for that. Um, you know, they were both <laughs> kind of jocks 
and my dad was a college baseball player and I told you my mom did, like did the uh, athletic department at a community college and like then they had two kids that were riding skateboards and you know listening to the disappointment to no effects and yeah. and then despertitos and yeah and i but they've uh at some point i think they made a piece with it and i give them credit and like i'm you know i think i'm pretty close with them i've gotten closer with them later um uh because i can talk to them like i can have a discussion like i can talk politics with them I, especially my dad I, like he's he's very open to like talking politics um and i think sometimes it helps he likes talking politics because he likes to kind of download some of like the more liberal talking points that i have so that he can go and like argue that with his his neighbors now <laughs> and like the, his like fishing oh, his okay. fishing buddies um and I think that, uh, you know, I, I, it's it's cool and I value that we have that relationship because I know so many families are like, you know, when my wife's family, it's like politics are off the table. We like, if we have a family dinner, like just nobody bring up politics at all. And I, I want to be able to engage in political conversation with people. I want to be able to like talk to them and like um, have like a, a civil argument or like a civil like, you know, let's talk about some of the, our values um, and not have it be all so taboo and not have it be like us like screaming at each other. And and it's tough because I feel like we're not, in, um, uh, you know, America is in a pretty strange place right now. Um, and there's just so many like surreal things that happen. I mean, you know, whatever, January 6th, I remember just watching that and like texting my dad um, or my like are you seeing this and I was on I had like another like work meeting at the time and I was like texting my dad like you should turn on the news right now um and yeah it's just it's it is uh surreal and bleak and I feel like the Connor Oberst's of the world were maybe more more uh right about shit um earlier on so yeah it's crazy to think how early this I mean I know like I didn't have the experience. I remember my brother brought crass home, but I didn't feel like I like understood it. You know, like it wasn't for that time. The only thing I feel like I took away was like the fight war, not war, story power, not people, because I feel like that wasn't that confusing when I was listening to no effects, murder the government. (laughs) It's like, you know, it's like, that's not like a crazy concept, but what I'm also getting to is like, when I listen to Desaparecidos, like, it's written in a way that it's plain spoken, which I'm always afraid to do. Like, I feel like I am like incapable of written writing political songs because I feel like all in my head, they're just come out. Like what I think they come out is like just murder the government. Like, and so I'm like, I'm too old to write that song. Like, and so seeing like the lyrics of this record and kind of like putting it in that way, do you feel like, have you been able to kind of write politically that way in your music? Um, Cause I, I, I'm saying I can't. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's hard. Uh, I think that there's something about, um, I mean, I, I can't write as well as he does. I think his skill, particular skill is like making it, he almost inhabits characters. So I almost feel like some of these are like in the perspective of character of like characters. And I know he had, and he can do satire too. So he has like, there's the song on Paola, that is kind of about um, 
Sheriff Joe in, in Arizona, like Mariposa County stuff. And he's writing it like in the perspective of being kind of like raw, raw, let's, let, let, let's get them. But it's, you know, obviously done in a satirical point of view, which is like really smart and really hard to do. It is like a needle to thread. And I, I struggle with that because I, I don't, I also don't have like the courage to be as like bold as to be able to do like a first person uh narrative character story about like oh it's yeah tough. No. yeah it's tough because like i think about um because on like one of the patreon episodes uh me and my wife went and revisited an all record and i love all in the sentence mm-hmm. but uh one of the they're like 2001 record i believe that was the year um just like some of the stuff just has not aged well at all <laughs> like it's like but i know that they were doing it from that was the character yeah but it's like even within the character, I'm like, I feel like their comments on what they're commenting on was clunky, yeah. you know, and it's like, I love that band, but it was like, I was like, woof, you know, but like so much of this record, um, I feel like my ideas of politics have progressed past it, but not, you know, but like, but it's still like refreshing to hear kind of like taking it to the context of 2002 and actually pl- past that. This still has aged very well. Yeah, I, I go, going back and revisiting it for this, uh, you know, to in prep for the podcast. You know, I it's it's on fairly regular rotation, but uh, giving it a nice like critical couple of spins. Uh, it's less cringy than I would have thought that most records that came out twenty years ago that are like this political sure. w- would yeah. be and exactly twenty years ago. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's, uh, I, I credit, I credit them as a writer. I credit the songs as be as like also, um, I think sometimes like when lyrical content can match the energy and vibe of the music too, um, that's important to me. I think part of like, you know, Murder of the Government uh, is, it, it, that's like a funny song. Like Fat Mike writes some of the most hilarious, like, tongue-in-cheek songs and that's kind of the brand and they're done in such a poppy kind of way but this like felt like scrappy and like some yes some of these I guess some of the politics in this like uh are not fully distilled and they are a little bit scrappy but also the sound the sound of the actual music and the sound of the musicians also feels like just as scrappy so it all kind of fits in together as like one piece uh and I think that that is part of the reason that it has, it does uh, stand the test of time a little bit more, at least in my opinion, I guess I have a pretty biased opinion calling this yeah. like one of my favorite records to begin with. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, it's funny cause I got the, I, you know, I had the vinyl, but then they did like a 20th anniversary reissue. Um, and so I got that and then I have the lyrics all here and they like printed them out on uh uh, it, it looks like a, a city planning report um, and they have the lyrics like written on a city planning report because the artwork was all like kind of like a city planning thing about expanding the suburbs and uh, yeah I went through and I read all the lyrics and I was like these these are some these are some great lines the guy is like uh, if I was 21 or 22 or whatever how old he was when he was writing it and could pull off lines that smart I couldn't, so I didn't, but 
Yeah, I don't think I was thinking of it's like I knew the phrase I knew the phrase gentrification and I feel like I got the kind of like the 101 versions of it and I, I agreed with it, you know, but like to kind of be able to parse it with like income inequality and kind of like even the idea of like putting on city planning, like I don't think I was thinking of local politics and how that like affects, you know, uh, marginalized people that I feel like this record does way way before it time and you know it's like i think that even some of the songs that might feel a tiny bit dated it's like if you could if you could also put a paragraph with it that's a thing you can't really do with the song i feel like they could explain it in a way that would make it kind of land more now because i think that's like a tough thing to get when you're writing a song you're like man if i had like another paragraph i think i could really (laughs) prove my point a little bit more but you know so i i think there's like ideas where i'm like if I had like a few more lines after that, I feel like I could get behind the sentiment, but sometimes it's, it feels uh, a little... I was sometimes surprised with how general... I don't want to say generic because it's not generic. It feels like general, mm-hmm. yet not generic, is is a very... I know we keep kind of saying it. It's like such a tight rope yeah, yeah. to do. So even all these years later, I'm like... And for how young he was, yeah. it's like... I'm just like, dude, I can't, I, I couldn't do this now as someone that has written and like has a degree and blah, 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 and blah. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting uh, what you said about like the, um, they're reading through the lyric sheet on this thing. There are just like little line or little like build up to lines, um, or like four words that go before what he actually says on the thing. Cause he's, you know, he, when he's doing the, when he's singing them, he's singing them fast, he's singing them loud. He's chopping off beginnings of sentences and sometimes ends of sentences. And so there is something about like, I think he's probably, and I don't know this for sure, but I feel like he is the writer that like goes and like writes it all out and like has his like kind of arc of thought that, uh, and then, you know, you go in and record and you realize that you wrote 15% more words than you can fit into that line when you go to sing it. I do that all the time too. I, I yeah, tend to I be didn't a, used to do a wordy as, guy. Yeah. I didn't used to do it as much because I feel like it's like it either came to me or didn't. But lately, within the past few years, I would, you know, like get the hook or the melody or something, but almost like try and sit there and think about, like, what is this song actually about? Like, where where would I go if I had, like, the ability to kind of flesh all of it yeah. out? And then so it's like, at least I know, you know? And uh, then it's like, then you kind of go through the thing, you know, slash and burn kind of, and then put what you can. But it's like, if I kind of know where I'm going and I'm not just trying to serve the melody, then, you know, that'd be interesting to see if that's, if that's actually his approach. Like, you know, I assume it is with how much he seems to write. Yeah. 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 And uh, there's, what I like about it too, is that again, there feels like there is like a point of view and a narrative, like, and he's like a character. <laughs> I mean, it blows my mind that he's like dealing with like very domestic things about like marriage. And I think it's interesting this record. And there was that cursive Domestica record, which is all about yeah. like a couple <laughs> like at the end of their relationship. And I obviously know that they're two, you know, these two guys obviously inspired each other and like had probably like that healthy competitive relationship. Um, 
but there's like really like mature stuff, I think, um, or maybe I'm being simple here, but I think there's like interesting mature things about like what it means to want to be an, an adult. Um, and I, as, as somebody who is, you know, pushing 40 and I guess I qualify as an adult now, uh, I do feel there's like something that the guy was like saying about like, being slightly resistant but like we all end up joining into the system anyways um kind of storytelling that he's doing here that now as a 40 year old or 39 year old who's married um it just feels it feels like oh real and resonant and like there are times where like i look at like uh i reflect on the 20 year old version of myself and the you know 20 years later version of myself and like to what extent am I still the same person? Uh, <laughs> it's, it's weird, but like 39 year old version of myself feels pretty similar in a lot of ways to like angsty 22 year old version of myself. So. Yeah. <laughs> Even the idea of being the age I am now, like uh, being like an adult that it's like, I've been through like thinking about like domestica. It's like, I haven't been through a divorce or anything, but like, it's like, you've probably been through a lot of those beats in life at that yeah. point, or some of the, even the beats that it feels like this record politically are setting up. It's like, I've been through them, you know, but it's like, I, I still often feel like I'm like a kid wearing like his dad's suit, like going in situations, you know, it's like, like an adult is something I can choose to put on, but it's not how I feel all the time. So what I think about it though, it's like, what just popped in my head. It's like, then is the idea of like i don't know like gentrification or income equality or like how he talks about it on this record is this his viewpoint of it or is this once again like a character of someone viewing these things that's that's interesting yeah uh yeah and that, that's tough because I, I i i can't crawl up into his head and and know but like <laughs> and I, knowing that he does like inhabit characters in his songs that are like variations on him himself but maybe not always him like that show arpaio song <laughs> yeah the, the char- yeah the character in this uh is like it's like guy who lives in the suburbs but has leftist ideology yeah but doesn't sold out, really yeah. technically on a yeah but yeah hasn't you know it's like driving a subaru or something and, and like thinking about it listen to npr yeah. and but you know and knows all the words it's almost like me being like oh yeah i have a therapy appointment or i'm going to the gym those in itself aren't the actions of actually dismantling the system you're just kind of you know the language to speak the thing but you're not doing anything about the thing yeah that's interesting it's almost like the uh the the retired punk who who decided to like yeah i mean if I get the job with a nice paycheck, then uh, I can still I can still listen to NPR and still uh, you know I'll donate to Planned Parenthood. But yeah, and then they, yeah. they, they become a very armchair lazy liberal. You know that's the contract that you make. Like I gotta grow up and accept responsibility, but I lose some of my like ideological integrity, which I think is a very adult thing that happens to you know uh, a lot of us, most of us. Um, yeah i think in a way it's like if we could you know it it sounds like flippant but it's like if we could be so lucky you know it's like if i can get to a point where some of that is a tiny bit in the rear view yeah then that's 
that's good, you know, but it's like, we also have to remember, you know, cause what I think about sometimes is like, whenever I'm in situations where I see people being like, well, but I mean, not to kind of point on this cause, but you know, it's like the not all, you know, people will be like, not all cops, yeah, or, yeah. you know, like whatever the kind of political situation is, they try and like paint themselves in mm-hmm. it, you know? And it's like, you could just not talk. <laughs> you know, I think that's like with like being the, that I'm, I own a home, you know, and I work a decent job and my wife works a decent job. Now it's like the best I can do in these situations is almost like, don't put myself in the situation. Like, so it's like, I think like if I've learned anything from, you know, punk bands or if I've learned anything from listening to fucking NPR or something, <laughs> it's like, you know, every situation that arises doesn't have to include me yeah, in it. Yeah. So sometimes it's like, you know, it's like, you know, I can be an ally and I mean that genuinely, but you know, it's like to be like, well, you know, when people talk about like trans things and then they talk about like their role in it, but it's like, you can just be supportive and not try and like make this about you. Right. You know, and I, I don't know how this has anything to do with de- uh, Desaparecidos, but I guess it's almost like the privilege of like distance away from it, you know, is just to kind of be like, I know where I'm at in life and just like, I'll be supportive of you. But, you know, yeah, that's I can't I can't claim to know. Yeah. No. Like what <laughs> that that situation is. You yeah. Know? And that's that's challenging. So. I mean, that's, a, uh, you know, as a uh, liberal dude trying to figure out like uh when to speak when to listen how, how to be an ally it's it's you know it's, it's all of this is like it's complicated territory and like again i i applaud Connor first and now all of his many iterations and this band for like like kind of being courageous and going into the things like fist in the air like like that's <laughs> I read a thing about that or him playing with like Rage Against the Machine or opening like for Rage Against the Machine. And it's like, besides Rage Against the Machine, I feel like maybe Bright Eyes or or some other iterations of this guy's band have been like the most overtly like political bands of the last generation, you know? Um, yeah. And yeah, I, I do feel somebody had brought this up um, recently. I forget who it was or how it came up. But they were just saying that, like, they wished that people almost had, like, majors in, like, what political things they wanted to engage in, like, political debates or conversations they wanted to engage in. And it's like, (laughs) it was like, don't, don't, like, go all in on this, like, political idea unless you know a shit ton about it, unless you are, like, that's, like, your major and maybe you have, like, a major and minor, uh, like, things that you want to be passionate about politically but i just don't think that that is like humanly possible um but it was an interesting yeah yeah (laughs) i mean we're all not going to but that would be like a good uh, almost like a rule of thumb to kind of have with certain things because it's like there's tons of research i need to do into like you know really like far far left things and i don't say far i feel like when i said far left it almost sounded like fox news or something (laughs) but like it's like maybe I don't know that much about like uh, the actual history of Cuba outside of a United States lens, you know, so it's like so I shouldn't go into a situation, you know, and try and talk about it like I'm an authority. You know, that's like simply what I mean, you know, because it's like I'm 
not I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> it's, it's interesting. Yeah, we uh, this happens all the time in uh, it, and you know I, I sometimes can play devil's advocate in arguments with like friends too. But like oh for sure it, yeah. sometimes it is about like depths of depth of knowledge about a certain subject. And this happens all the times when the friends are debating like, oh, what movie, this movie or this band or whatever. And some people have more depth of knowledge about certain bands or movies or artists or, or whatever. And so, you know, it's like, I'm not going to like get into like an argument with like a Dostoevsky scholar about like the merits of crime and punishment, because that person like objectively knows more about that thing than I do. Um, but I think that is a, that's a struggle that does feel like we are all kind of um, struggling with as people right now, because I do feel like we've mm -hmm. democratized who who is um, who's a, an authority who has a voice about uh, you know any fill in the blank subject matter, um, and so because we all have like grown up now like valuing our individual voice, I do think that we wade into arguments and conversations with, you know, experts, quote unquote experts. Um, and people seem more unapologetic about like kind of sticking a middle finger up to experts. And I guess maybe it is like the fact that I like do teach at a college or do like value that like, in order for me to be able to teach at a college, I had to learn a thing or two. Um, I do get a little nervous when like everybody starts like, trying to be like hey expert who went to school for x amount of years like let me let me take you down a notch because uh of this but then on the same time like i see the merit in that too and so i do feel like i have i'm talking out of yeah. all sides of my it's mouth such a, that's uh, uh, that's such a hard thing to like it, it's balance it, yeah. because <laughs> you have to be like yeah i think it's just a matter of uh if cool you're an expert whatever you study you went to a lot of school and you have a lot of experience studying this shit cool whatever but like still keep your ears open still listen and still like grow and engage and i think that that's the hardest thing that i think that happens and i've seen this happen in like college academia too it's like some of the older guard people stop growing and they like their brain sort of like calcifies and closes off oh yeah and then yeah 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 that's the danger and i think that that happens to anybody and that actually just happens as we get older in age and so i think you know to bring it all back around it's like grow or like you know gain experience gain perspective but also like allow your brain and value growth value like the fact that you can grow and change and like you need to get more information and be curious and all those things yeah yeah like i think in a sense and i i don't know where he falls like politically now but it's like whatever ideas that young connor oberst and the rest of the band kind of like put out there in 2002 while they've aged well mm -hmm. i would hope that they continue to progress and read because i feel like there's so many situations and I don't really need to say people by name. It's like, there's, there's tons of them out there, but it's like kind of a left leaning, like punk band. It's like, they put out like the most left thing in like 95 and then eventually like 
years later like the i remember that was like the i'll say one of the band's name like this band chokehold and then the guy got he said something kind of like hateful on stage and then the only thing i feel like in his comment about it was like but we're chokehold yeah, you know, yeah. It's like, you know and i'm i'm really like simplifying it but it but i've seen that that kind of thing or like but i am this band like what are you talking about you know and like writers have been the same way like you know and i feel like they're like but i'm i'm this you know it's like bad bad example here but it's like for many years i don't think he does this anymore but i feel like even bill maher would be like but i'm bill maher right 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 you know and then people would you know and for a while i feel like people were like yeah you are and then now it's like i don't even think he even tries to do that shtick anymore but like even fat mike's kind of like this too where it's like but i'm I did this in 96, you know, or people that kind of listen to no effects or, I mean, yeah. I was one of them, but it's like, if you kind of stopped at that point, yeah. if you stopped at murder of the government, if you stopped at even the better ideas that Desa Parasitos did in 2002 in 2022, yeah, you know, that's like, it's like the listening and growing thing. Like you get like a good concept and then just kind of stop yeah. growing as a person is, is a bad place to be. I yeah. agree wholeheartedly. It's, the only point I mean. uh, it's it's dangerous to <laughs> hit the pause button on your growth and development, and and I do think I, I see that happen a lot for people, uh, or I feel like I see that happen a lot for people, um, and I think it's dangerous. And also, what I think it's especially dangerous about it is because it ties you down to history, like it ties you down to a context. If you stopped growing in 1996 or whatever, or you stopped growing in 2002 or your political identity just like calcified in 2005 or 2008 or 2015 or what, you know, whatever, you know, big political year it did stop growing, then like your perspective on any other historical moment or change is going to be like totally skewed by the baggage that you have from calcifying in that moment it's been an interesting teaching um so i teach at ucla i teach like a writing class um but a lot of my kids now are like born well after 9 11 <laughs> uh and yeah, so i yeah. think about how much my political identity and you know punk identity came as like a suburban kid coming into college at this time and then like also like a lot of my political identity being a voting age at a time when it was like Iraq war, George Bush, George uh, W. Bush, and like also being on tour when Obama got elected and we were up in Portland and we were like hugging strangers and like felt so like victorious. And then I remember being in school back in like grad school when Trump was elected and just feeling like, like, oh fuck. Like uh, each of these like little political moments like informs your or my identity now as a, a voting <laughs> a, a voting citizen of America um, but then I see my kids or my students that like don't have the identity baggage of like coming up during the Iraq war um, and they don't have the like like uh, rose rosy goggles of like Obama is the greatest you know uh figure to... there's a lot of people that are frozen in that yeah totally the obama yeah obama years and i easily could have been that person you know and that's like a crazy thing to think of like if you kind of just were like this is all good in 2008 <laughs> i think it was 2008 and then just kind of you didn't progress past there right 
that's a scary notion too. Yeah, yeah. I, I, uh, and that's why I think that it's important. I, I do end up having some faith in like the next generation. Like, uh, I think a lot of, um, uh, as I've seen, as I've gotten older, I think a lot of like older people like always talk about how the next generation is like, oh, uh, they, you know, these, these uh, Gen Z people or whatever you want to call them, like, they're going to screw it up and they're so self-centered and yada, yada, yada. I also think that it's like, I, for a lot of, for teaching has given me more faith in the next generation of um, people, students, because like, I still think that there are like cool ideas and that the kids are, it's cheesy, but like the kids are all right. Like, uh, at, um, they don't, because they don't have the same kind of like political, social baggage that we have that any generation brings to the next moment of history with them. Like, just like I, I was born in 1982, so I didn't experience Vietnam, but that was a form, formative political thing for my parents' age. Uh, and 9-11 was a formative thing for our age, and Obama was a formative thing for our age, and Trump is, you know, a formative thing. Um, but there's going to be a generation where those aren't the, like, formative things, and those people, by being able to, like, be a step past that can actually probably see things like from a different perspective and actually do a lot of good work and i hope that happens i hope that we don't i hope yeah, we don't fuck up I the world so too, too much before so they don't get a chance to do that um i think it's interesting just to think about how um this was probably my blind spot or it's like society i feel like when obama left office like i feel like people were like i don't know maybe greatest president of all time and then all these years later, like that is not the way people overall feel about the Obama years. Like, and that's an interesting thing that I wouldn't have predicted at that point, right. given the information I guess I had in 20, you know, 2015, you know, so that it's interesting how like these things kind of like my worldview was, I guess this is probably the best it gets for a president to like, oh man, he really missed a lot of things you know like all these years later it's such an interesting like place to be um and that, that's where the this record and other kind of punk records or indie rock records like like it does sound cheesy but like don't stop kind of questioning yeah. you know like don't let that thing it's like it's like i don't know if i'm in a band that sounds anything like them but i think there's like a thing that you can take from any of these albums is like kind of like question it sounds i feel so silly saying question authority but i it, it is truly that it's just like question everything you're being fed at this this given time is such an important thing that don't question it kind of like in 2002 standards like question it now yeah. you know and i i know that i'm not saying that in the best way possible but it's like that's what i take from all of these things even like it's like when i look at like sst records it's like I don't need to start a band that sounds exactly like these bands. Cause that wasn't the mm -hmm. point, you know, like it's like, I start a band that I feel like is my authentic self. I guess back to what we said at the beginning, it's just like, what version of me can I put into the situation or what kind of version given the context of like today is what I think this record is. Yeah. So, yeah. That's, that's, so, that's, yeah, that's, uh, it's great. And like, have, we have the history, lesson of knowing what black flag sounded like and knowing what the minutemen were about and knowing what 90s no effects and whatever was about like 
but yeah, that it has to inform who we are in 2022 now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like with music. those students that you have, you know, it's like, I think sometimes as we get older, it's like, why don't people, and I, I wish more bands sound like Tessa Paracito, so yes, as an older person, yeah. But like, that kids don't need that to express like some of the ideas that these are having. Like, they don't have to sound right. like that. Because it's like, you know, it's like when people, when we were growing up, like, oh man, uh, rock was the best when it was Led Zeppelin, you know? And then it's like, well, what does that mean to someone that's 20 years old now? Yeah. You know, so it's like, maybe it's expressed in a completely different way that we don't even recognize in this orbit, but it doesn't mean they aren't, uh, you know, expressing it. Like when people are like, oh, well, a few years later, earlier people would be like, oh, millennials do yeah. this. Or, you know, when people go into conversations and they use that heavily, I feel like I'm like tuning out because I'm just like, you're not willing to look at people as like actualized human beings, right. you know, outside of these contexts, you know, but, but I know I've kept you for a long time. We could talk forever about this. Um, but I guess before I truly do let you go, you did put out a new record. <laughs> oh oh yeah. That, I yeah. want to give you, yeah, that's what I think that's, it's kind of why you're here. Um, and I, there was even parts where I wanted to even talk to you. I know we've gone long, about you know henry clay people and just kind of almost like realizing kind of the things of where your story has led you and i wish i would have talked to you about this earlier in the conversation you know just those kind of like wikipedia or imdb kind of notes like uh like let me see if i can say it like when i think of like henry clay people and like some of the shows that y'all were playing like drive by truckers i believe yeah, you yeah. did a tour with or some shows with and japan droids like how do you look back at that era and your place in it and i know i'm kind of asking a very wide question yeah i mean yeah that kind of era of rock i feel like that for lack of a better word like no it's interesting you know, and in hindsight it, it, it was um i don't think we had like a by any means like a significant dent in, in any of that rock stuff but like i do look back on like loud guitars uh as something that i felt like we were doing and into and then i felt like loud guitars became pretty uncool <laughs> and it was trade in your loud guitars for some synths and uh program some shit on a computer and i do feel like at the end of the day i am like a guitar rock and roll romantic person who doesn't like click tracks and, and likes uh likes the humanity of you know being in a band and like i think that like sometimes yeah sometimes i hate that that's me you know <laughs> like i i it's like it's like the curse that i've been given so I, i'm saying i understand the sentiment where i'm like things would be easier if i didn't think this was who i yeah. am but i you know i some people ask like about um you know i have like another career and things now but uh when people ask about near beer i i call it like a, i do call it my like old man rock and roll band i know we're not like super old or anything but like it does feel a little bit like the vibe and the bands that like our biggest influences are bands that largely are not around anymore um and so it's a it's a weird thing because i i, I I'm always conscious about being, I don't want to be like overly nostalgic about things. Um, 
because I do think it is important to grow and move on and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but I also do feel like it's okay to unapologetically like the same songs that you like. It, it is something like, you know, when Spotify came out uh, or whatever, like streaming thing, and all of a sudden you had every song that you ever wanted at your fingertips. And then realizing mm -hmm. that I was going back and just like looking up like all the CDs that I've lost from like over the years and like yeah. finding the joy of like what it was like to first hear, you know, Roof Shake and Felt Punk to Come by the Refused, by Refused and like not the Refused. Uh, I don't know. Like there's something about that that um, I want our music to just also feel honest and, and pure about what we like the kind of shit that we like and care about um and i think at some point in the henry clay people history um there was a slightly corrupting thought of like oh your label was like you guys can maybe sell a bunch of records if you do this or maybe you guys you guys are close but what if you did this or paid a little more attention to the melodies or yada 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 and as soon as there was like a corrupting thought and I, I will be honest in saying that it was like touring with a couple bands that were like more radio friendly like like successful bands that that thought like got into my head and like affected the songs that I wrote because I all of a sudden was like writing songs that I thought like maybe is this what the record label guy wants is this what you know a publicist thinks they can do something with um and I look back on those on that era of the Henry Clay people and I'm like bummed about it and I regret that I like gave up part of like the pureness of what I was doing mm -hmm. for chasing after chasing after something that I thought somebody else wanted um and I think that is part of the reason that I do like when I think about near beer or when I think about like uh why I value certain bands uh over other bands it's because i do feel like they did this for themselves they did this because this is the mm -hmm. record that they knew how to do at this moment and it was like they can shut out some of those other outside influences and maybe they didn't shut out those influences but they're good at like at least appearing like they're blocking them out um because i know how like kind of corrupting those influences were for me like to like drive right by truckers like going out with those guys that kind of came at that was like the refreshing happier portion of our band because i think we'd already gone hey that record was supposed to do something for us and it didn't and then like touring with with the truckers guys who are just like band guys like th those guys are just dudes that are going to be in bands and like solid and put out records because they like that's what they do and they know how to do it really well um, that was sort of like the healing period of our, our band life where I felt like getting back in touch with like no dude it's about the music it's about um being more unapologetic about it and I and uh you know we didn't last that much we did a couple tours with the truckers we like played uh, show in Madison with the hold steady and it was like that show felt particularly like celebratory like the whole city audience like really dug our band and then after the show I drank beers and talked like books with Craig Finn and I was like this is great and then the band broke well then we broke up kind of like within a couple <laughs> months after that um 
but that's why I like starting near beer and like anything that I'm going to do with near beer. Like I never, I, I'm going to make these records like regardless of, and if anybody listens to them or if they don't, uh, cause I love doing it. And I decided that I like keeping music in my life and I'm actually like, now that I've done it and like, you know, I, I really do feel like we made that record for us. And then we like gave it to our friends and then all of a sudden the record label wanted to like put it out and like get it heard by other people. And now we might like play more shows now. Um, that feels organic to me and like cool. And um, the best part of Henry Clay people when we first started was that we had no expectation for ever like going anywhere, being anything. We were just the band that said yes to like whatever show not because we had like stars in our eyes, but just because like, what else are we gonna do on like a Tuesday night? Sure, why not? We'll say yes. And uh, anything that happened in the early part of that band was like very natural and organic and, and it just tasted so much better. And I kind of want to treat near beer um, the same way in the like late thirties <laughs> version of that. Um, but if anything good happens for a band or we go and play some shows with our favorite bands or we get any kind of like cool break, I'm just gonna be the most like happy, grateful human being because um, I love doing it and, and doing it for the love of music, not for, not to get big or anything. Yeah. And uh, where can people find you online and, you know, the record and everything? Um, the record, uh, I think we have, I mean, nearbeerla.com, I think, is our, like, main um, website, I guess. <laughs> and that, like, our merch and our records that are Bandcamp. I love Bandcamp. So, like, we have a Near Beer LA Bandcamp. I think there's, like, the Near Beer Band, and that's not us. We're Near Beer LA, <laughs> yeah. uh, even though I live in New York. So, and then on Instagram, Near Beer LA, like, I... I I'm bad. I don't do like Twitter. I guess we have a Twitter and we have a Facebook, but like Instagram, if people write us, I'm usually pretty good at writing them back. And um, I use the, the Instagram account more than most other things. Welcome back. Thanks again to Joy for coming on the pod. Check out the new album by Near Beer and also go watch The Resort streaming right now on Peacock. Okay, next week is the 100th episode of the pod, and that's a really wild thing to say out loud. Crazy to just think how long I've stuck with this. I started this during the pandemic just to honestly feel connected with friends and pass the time since I didn't feel like writing music or doing much of anything, which I know most of you probably felt the same way. But I wanted to do something that at least felt slightly productive, so here we are 100 episodes later. Really crazy to say. And I couldn't have done any of it without Sarah Blumenthal. That's my wife, my Patreon co-host, and the editor of the pod. So, next week, we'll be on the pod together. We're going to talk about our favorite albums by The Descendants. And so, more on that next week, but please tune in to the 100th episode, and also, sort of related, as we get into the 100th episode, please check out our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash spinningoutpod. It really helps us keep doing what we're doing here. There's like hosting and all of those things that you have to pay for. And honestly, the content that we're doing over there is really great. Uh, Sarah is a really amazing co-host and it's a lot of fun. So it'd be, you know, it'd help us and it's interesting content. So check it out. 
Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Leave a comment, and I hear reviews help. Thanks as always to Sarah Blumenthal for editing the pod and Pretty Maddie for the theme. Okay, see you next week. It's 100 episodes.